2006 was an unusual year for the San Antonio meeting in one respect. By far and away, the paper that gained the most attention in the lay press was not a therapeutic trial, but rather an amazing presentation by one of our regular educational collaborators, Dr. Peter Ravden, who clued me in under sworn secrecy a couple of months before the meeting as to what he was going to present. Peter was also a faculty member for our meeting review, and he began with comments on his presentation. What I presented was that in 2003, there was a 7% decrease relative to 2002 in the incidence of breast cancer. And the reason we're talking about 2003 is because SEER, the SEER National Cancer Registry, takes about three years to kind of check and complete their registry information. 2003 is a significant year in breast cancer because it's the year after the results from the first hormone therapy women's health initiative trial was reported. And that trial, of course, showed a trend toward increased risk of heart disease and also breast cancer for the group that was taking combined estrogen-progestin therapy And the trial was stopped, actually, early. The results reported, and it had a dramatic effect on the amount of hormone replacement therapy used in the United States. Within the year, the amount of hormone replacement therapy had decreased about 50%. So there are a couple things we did. We looked to see if the effect was age-related, and it was. The effect was really only seen in women who were older than 50 That was where the decrease was, and it was largely in estrogen receptor-positive cancers. And those two things actually point toward it, you know, having something to do with the Women's Health Initiative study because, of course, those are the populations. uh, Well, the older patients, of course, are the ones that are taking hormone replacement therapy. And there really are two possible explanations, and the explanations are that women who both stopped their hormone replacement therapy and also stopped screening mammography. And there is evidence for a decrease, but it's a modest decrease, 3% decrease in 2003 for the number of mammograms that were being gotten. And, you know, the obvious other possibility is it has something directly to do with the biological, you know, impact of these exogenous hormones in postmenopausal women. So that's, in my opinion, a large part of the effect. I think we're going to get definitive evidence this year about this because the women who participated in the Women's Health Initiative study and had their hormone therapy stopped, we know precisely when they're stopped. They've gotten regular screening mammograms since then, so we've had kind of a uniformity of detection. And it's my understanding that sometime in mid-2007, they'll actually have taken a look to see what actually happened at cessation. A lot of people don't like the idea that the effect could be so sudden. And that is certainly an interesting feature of all of this. But when you think about it, there's a rationale, and that is that really what's happening here is not some kind of cancer prevention, you know, stopping initiation, but rather is an effect on progression of just subclinical cancers, you know, present in 2002 that didn't cross the detection limit in 2003. So it'll be interesting to see how this comes out. Of course, it has enormous implications. First of all, it shows how a large study like the Women's Health Initiative study can have a huge impact in the general population. I think it also shows the value of tumor registry-related information 
because that allows us to kind of broadly look out into the population and see whether or not our trials are having a broad population-based impact. What prompted you and your group to actually look at this? Well, I've recently joined a modeling effort, one of the centers of which is MD Anderson. And the modeling effort is one to try to understand incidence rates and breast cancer mortality rates in the United States. It's called the CISNET program. And so we've been looking at incidence and mortality rates. And so when this showed up, we looked at it in depth. What is the impact of combined HRT with a progestin as opposed to unopposed estrogen on breast cancer incidence? Well, that's a complex story. The Women's Health Initiative study, the hormone therapy part, actually had two different sub-studies. One of them was done in women with an intact uterus, and they got a combination of estrogen and progestin versus placebo. And the other study was done in women who had had a hysterectomy, and that was unopposed conjugated equine estrogen versus placebo. And of course, the reason for the difference in the studies was because unopposed estrogen is implicated in causing endometrial cancer. So there were really two studies. The results of the studies were a little bit different. In the combined estrogen progestin study, there was an increased risk of breast cancer that was statistically significant. In the other study, kind of surprisingly, there was a trend toward a decrease in breast cancer risk for the women who got just unopposed estrogen. We don't really have a good explanation for that. And, of course, after the first study was reported, in the general population, women actually generalized, and both forms of hormone replacement therapy were taken to a much lesser degree. Now, we don't really think that the first part of the Women's Health Initiative study, however, is the definitive story, and that's the amount that breast cancer incidence increases when you start hormone replacement therapy. What we think is that probably what we're looking at is not a decrease in starting, which would have a relatively minor effect, but the cessation of hormone replacement therapy, where there'd be a lot less hormone replacement therapy taken. Many of the women, by the way, in the population clearly are taking hormone replacement therapy for 10 years or longer. And I suspect that it's kind of like the Santon hypothesis you know, one of the people that worked in breast cancer, and that is the idea that, you know, why is it paradoxically that in treatment of macroscopic disease, you know, people respond to DES and also respond to deprivation? And his hypothesis is that the cancers grow and accommodate to a hormonal milieu, and the change in the milieu is what's important. So that's a possible explanation for why different hormones might have effects you know, kind of the same effect in women when they were stopped. It's interesting. So you're saying that maybe a lot of women who stopped had had sort of what Dick Stanton talks about as a resetting of the estrus stat? Right, that's right. That's right. It's kind of a withdrawal response. And personally, what I'm hoping is that it is mostly hormone therapy, because of course, if it's mostly screening, that would be really a negative story in that what it would be is that you'd see a temporary drop and then it would come right back up, and in fact, you'd be dealing with more advanced tumors. If it's hormone therapy, one could hope that it, in a way, hopefully it'll have an adjuvant-like response, where we know that hormone deprivation in the adjuvant setting can cause, at least in some patients, you know, an eradication of tumor apparently, so that 20 years later, after the, you know, oophorectomy, the curves are still apart and they're not converging. 
So maybe we'd be able to, with a strategy like this, eradicate microscopic subclinical disease in the breast. It'll be very interesting to see what happens in 2004. Incidentally, one of the California registries just within the last couple weeks sent a letter to the JCO saying that they've observed this effect and that it is evident both in 2003 and 2004. That's a Kaiser Permanente system looking at this. So that, I think, builds our confidence that this is going to be an effect which is not a one-year wonder. Now, you mentioned that there's been a somewhat of a decrease in the use of mammography. What's behind that? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, the data that I've seen for mammography is relatively crude in that it doesn't break it out by whether or not it was screening or diagnostic mammography. But, you know, a possible rationale is, or thinking would be, well, if a woman stops seeing her GP to get hormone replacement therapy every year, and he's, you know, getting carefully a mammogram every year, that when women stop one, they stop both. You know, I'm not sure that that's the logic that people would follow. Another possible logic would be, you know, women would stop hormone replacement therapy, think, heavens, I've been taking something to stimulate breast cancer all this time. I better be careful about getting mammograms for the next few years. So I think much more detailed information about mammography in 2003 will become available, but we didn't have access to it. We had relatively crude numbers from a national survey. Now, at the time, the WIND study reported about what fraction of postmenopausal women in the United States were taking HRT and what fraction dropped. Okay. The fraction that was taking hormone replacement therapy was roughly 30% of postmenopausal women. And I presented data from a paper by Buest, who actually looked at HMO patients and the prescriptions that they were filling. And he saw by December of 2002, a 38% drop. If you actually look at the prescription numbers in the United States, by mid-2003, it's fallen by more than 50%. You know, there are other things out there that may be influencing in a positive way breast cancer incidence. For instance, the drug raloxifene, which is out there, is of course been shown in the STAR trial to decrease breast cancer risk. And, you know, it's not been approved for prevention yet, but it probably will be. And we looked at raloxifene in terms of use in the United States, and there had been no major change in use during this period. And it had been used for several years at about the same level, less than 5% of the population. So I think that the numbers are too small and the change is too small to really account for what we were looking at. The same thing could be said of tamoxifen. You know, tamoxifen's never been widely adopted as a prevention drug, and the use is really less than half a percent in this population for that purpose. And there's no major evidence of change there. You know, there are things like non-steroidals are actually possible candidates for breast cancer prevention. And again, actually, there's no evidence of a major change in the use of non-steroidals suddenly, although certainly the prevalence of use is wide. And, you know, there are other things too. The statin story is out there. But in terms of, you know, something that changed markedly between 2002 and 2003, the use of hormone replacement therapy stands out as really the major thing. But in the end, we probably will find out that it's a combination of things. But the major step was, in my opinion, going to be hormone replacement therapy and the cessation and its use. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other papers that were presented, and starting with abstract number 49 that Terry Mamunas from the NSABP presented on the B33 study. Can you talk about what that trial looked at and what he reported? This trial was an interesting trial because it was going on at the same time the JMA17 trial was going on. 
The JMA-17 trial, which we've all heard about, of course, was after five years of tamoxifen, a randomization to get a planned five years of letrozole versus five years of placebo. And as you remember, that trial was stopped after a little bit over two years of follow-up because of the marked difference in recurrence rates between the two groups. Well, an unattended negative consequence of that early stopping was that it caused the NACVP B33 trial to actually have to be stopped on ethical grounds. Now, the NACVP B33 trial was a very similar trial in design, essentially identical, except instead of using letrozole, it used exomustane. And it had a planned accrual of 3,000 patients, but it was stopped after only about two years of accrual at 1,600 patients. And the patients were informed of the results of the JMA-17 trial, and they were given the option to get exomustane for free if they wished to cross over or not. And about half the patients crossed over. So, you know, this trial has really been weakened by both not going on long term, so it has relatively short follow-up, 30 months of follow-up. A lot of the patients crossed over. And also that, of course, it accrued half the planned number of patients. Despite this, actually, it's a positive study, which is really quite remarkable. You know, for disease-free survival, which with NACPP includes all kinds of things, including death without disease and also second cancers, it actually showed a 32% reduction and a p-value that's just short of significance, you know, at 0.07%. But when you clean up that by removing death without recurrence from the definition, as well as other primary cancers, so you get uh, relapse-free survival, then there was a 56% reduction at this early time point with a p-value of less than 0.01. So there was no effect on overall survival, incidentally, but I wouldn't expect that at 30 months in ER-positive cancer. So that's not really a disappointment. So, you know, they reported like in prior aromatase inhibitor studies that the toxicity profile was acceptable. There were no major changes on quality of life. There was slightly more fractures in the aromatase inhibitor group. And they concluded that exomustane looked roughly as good as letrozole in this setting and that the toxicity profile was acceptable. So, you know, this is just a study that has very similar results to the JMA-17 study, despite the challenges to it that I mentioned. And basically, it does kind of heighten the question of, you know, how long should we be giving hormonal therapy? I think one of the major questions that is yet addressed, or it's addressed, but there's no reported results, is what do we do with patients who've been on aromatase inhibitors five years, because we know that their recurrence is out beyond that point, and we know that their hormone-sensitive recurrences And that's, I think, one of the next big questions in the aromatase inhibitor story, not addressed by this study, but certainly raised by it. And I guess there's also been a European study looking at anastrozole after five years. So we've got data for all three of the AIs. I was really surprised because when he was presenting all that data on the crossover patients and the short follow-up, I was sure he was going to say in the trial was negative. And then, boom, you see this really marked effect. It really is an endorsement of how powerful these agents can be in a delayed setting. Right. And it's quite remarkable that the kind of recurrences that you're getting after five years, after five years of hormonal therapy, are actually highly hormonally sensitive. 
Let's talk about paper 48 from the attack trialist looking at the issue of ERPR and HER2 expression in response to anastrozole. This was actually one of the papers that I was really interested in hearing. And let me just set the stage for this. It was presented by Mitch Dowsett, who works in London. And he's been the chief biologist, really, for the ATAC trial. And two years ago, he presented data in San Antonio that showed that aromatase inhibitors looked particularly good versus tamoxifen if you were ER positive, PGR negative. So some countries, actually, in Europe ran out and improved the use of aromatase inhibitors only in that population. At the time, Mitch was really absolutely appropriately cautious. He said, this is one study, this is an unplanned subset analysis, and even though it has a p-value of 0.001, you know, he would like to see it reproduced. And I guess, actually, he said at that time, because I interviewed him, that he was speculating that ER-positive, PR-negative subset was actually the HER2-positive patients. So it raised the issue of that, although, of course, at that time, all they had was really individual center-done biomarkers, and most centers hadn't done HER2. They didn't have that information. And one of the reasons why he said that was because in the neoadjuvant setting, there has been a developing story that perhaps in the HER2-positive patients, those were the ones that got particular benefit from an aromatase inhibitor. Well, last year, along came the results from the big study, and they really challenged the idea of the speculations and actually data presented by Dowsett. And what they found was absolutely not a sniff of a benefit that progesterone receptor or HER2 could be used to select patients who were particularly sensitive to aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen. And so they had actually done their determinations in a central laboratory as part of that trial. And so it challenged the ATAC people to really, you know, say, okay, well, how about doing it in a central laboratory? See what you get. Is the difference somehow the quality of the tests? Which would seem surprising, but nonetheless, the ATAC set about collecting tumors And they successfully collected about half the cases, blocks from about half the cases. And they then did centrally determined estrogen, progesterone, and HER2. And what they found was that they weren't able to reproduce their prior study with a progesterone receptor. There was no statistically significant difference between the ER-positive, PGR-positive patients and the ER-positive, PGR-negative patients in terms of the advantage of anastrozole over tamoxifen. And additionally, they looked at HER2 to see if it would be a predictor, and they didn't find HER2 to be a predictor either. So I think that the strongest evidence at this time suggests that if you're trying to select between tamoxifen and an aromatase inhibitor for an ER-positive postmenopausal patient, that we don't have a good biomarker that would allow you know, such a selection to be made. And I think that in all the subsets of patients, an aromatase inhibitor appeared better than tamoxifen. Let's talk a little bit about paper number 102, a poster by Hymus and all, looking at the MA17 delayed letrozole study that you mentioned before based on the age of the patients. In that study, Hymus has actually really been focusing on, particularly in older populations, the effectiveness of some of the therapeutic options. And, you know, these patients in general are underrepresented in clinical trials, particularly in chemotherapy clinical trials. 
They're not really underrepresented, however, in hormone therapy trials. So you can really look statistically at whether or not age makes a difference. And so what they did is they took a look at the patients in the JMA-17 study, which was the extended letrozole versus placebo after five years of tamoxifen, and they broke it out into less than 60, you know, 60 to 69 and 70 and greater. And roughly a quarter of the patients were 70 and older. So they had lots of patients in all the groups. And they analyzed the data, taking a look to see if the disease-free survival and distant disease-free survival advantages were seen equally across the groups. And they were seen equally across the groups. So there was no evidence of some age dependence of the value of this therapy. To me, one of the more interesting things was that they looked at specifically arthralgias, which is something that can be very bothersome to patients. And you just wonder whether or not the older patients might be particularly susceptible to that as a problem. And they didn't see any trend to differences in arthralgia risk or myalgia risk with age. There was some more arthritis, but it was coded differently than the arthralgia, and it wasn't dramatically different. So what they concluded was that aromatase inhibitor strategies in older patients were perfectly reasonable and were well supported by the data in terms of efficacy and safety. And I guess you have that built into the adjuvant online computer model, and that also takes into competing causes of mortality, though. Right, that's right. So, you know, it's interesting. They saw poor overall survival in the older patients. But just looking at the curves, of course, most of that's competing mortality, particularly in such short follow-up. So they didn't present breast cancer-specific survival. But remember, this trial really has, at this analysis point, which is it unblinding, that's when the analysis was done for, you know, there's only 30 months of follow-up. What were your thoughts about poster 104, which looked at anastrozole versus tamoxifen in terms of thromboembolic events? Well, this study is, you know, one of many sub-analyses from the ATAC trial. And, of course, thromboembolic events are one of the things that was more prevalent overall in the group that was getting tamoxifen versus anastrozole. In fact, the anastrozole group overall had 40% fewer venous thromboembolic events. So all other things being equal, you might pick an aromatase inhibitor just because it was less toxic. And they looked into the study to see, you know, who it was that was getting thrombotic events and what the time course was of these events. What they found was that risk factors for thromboembolic events were age. The older you were, the higher the chance. It was about a doubling with age. And also being overweight, very high BMIs were associated with significant increase in risk of venous thromboembolic events. There were other things which were less prevalent, like, you know, having surgery and other things that also put you at risk. So that, in a way, doesn't surprise me. Some of the things, for instance, particularly age, is clearly age-dependent risk for just tamoxifen alone. It's the patients who are older that are the ones that are getting into problems with excess thromboembolic events. The other thing which was interesting was that most of the events, the highest risk years were the first couple of years. However, across the entire range, and now the trial has about six years of follow-up, there was always an advantage for the anastrozole group versus the tamoxifen group. In other words, they always, even in year five, had fewer thromboembolic events. 
And one of the conclusions reached by the authors is that this early increased toxicity actually does argue that perhaps initially starting with an aromatase inhibitor, rather than you know starting with tamoxifen and then switching, one of the additional advantages of that strategy is that you avoid the period of heightened thromboembolic event risk. Another sort of related paper, at least related to AIs, was number 107, looking at a really common question, which is the issue of using a bisphosphonate in patients who are receiving aromatase inhibitors. This study was a study, actually it was a combination of two studies, one done in Europe and one done in North America, the ZFAST and the ZOFAST studies. And in these studies, patients who were getting, I believe it was letrozole, were randomized to either get zoledronic acid, Zometa, at four milligrams every six months as initial therapy, starting with the start of their aromatase inhibitor versus starting it only if they'd had a bone event or if their DEXA study showed a T-score of less than two. So really, this is like immediate IV bisphosphonate versus delayed IV bisphosphonate looking to demonstrate, really, the value of IV bisphosphonates in this situation. The analysis that they presented was with relatively short follow-up, with one year of follow-up. But it does show the early effects. And during this period, about 10% of the patients in the delayed group lost enough bone mass to essentially start their delayed therapy. What they found was that basically there was a protection of bone mass by zoledronic acid and that there was really uh, actually a slight gain in bone mass, whereas in the patients who were taking aromatase inhibitor without any bisphosphonate, that they were experiencing a loss in bone mass during this period. So the early results are very encouraging. And then they looked at uh, safety analysis too. Now, there are roughly 900 patients on each arm, so this study can talk about safety in some meaningful sense. There was one patient in the initial zoledronic acid group who experienced a grade 2 renal toxicity. So that's pretty low. That's 0.1%. There was no reports of osteonecrosis of the jaw. So overall, you know, this is certainly a strategy that does work to preserve bone mass. There was really, uh, I don't think, any real difference in fracture rates, which were very low in this study. So really, in terms of the real crucial endpoints, we won't know those for another couple of years, but certainly it looked good in this study that the treatment was effective and reasonably safe, at least over the short term. I guess it'll be interesting. I don't know when it's going to happen in terms of the NSABP study looking at clodronate to actually prevent metastatic disease. It'd be nice if that turned out to be positive. Yeah, that's actually, I think that one of the really interesting features of things is the idea that these agents might also have adjuvant effects as well. And of course, with one year of follow-up, we don't have any information on that, particularly in this ER-positive population. But this study is probably too small to ever demonstrate an adjuvant effect, but certainly it would be one of the interesting things to look for. What about poster 1055 looking at anastrozole and cholesterol from the IBIS-2 study? Okay. Well, I think one of the things that people have always been worried about aromatase inhibitors is the idea that if estrogens help keep you with a healthy lipid profile, perhaps things that caused a decrease in estrogen levels would cause significant changes in lipid profiles and serum cholesterol that might be unfavorable. 
And this is particularly crucial in a healthy population where you're thinking about prevention. So the IBIS-2 trial is ongoing in Europe. And in this trial, patients in the prevention setting are being randomized between placebo and anastrozole. And so at one year of follow-up in this study, they actually looked at lipid profiles in patients to be sure that they weren't perturbing the lipid profiles in some way that looked threatening. And what was so interesting about this study is it was really, <laughs> it was really very encouraging that lipid profiles were not being perturbed by anastrozole. And in fact, total cholesterol, you know, high and low density cholesterol fractions and total triglycerides weren't being affected significantly between the placebo and anastrozole group. So this is very reassuring. And if there are differences in the end in cardiovascular disease rates, it would seem that they'd be unlikely to have as their cause lipid-related effects. So I've got to ask you, at this point, we've talked about this a couple times over the last couple of years, do you think there is an excess risk of cardiovascular events with AIs? It seems small if it's there. The trial results are inconsistent on this. There certainly are some trials that have suggested an increased risk of cardiovascular events. But overall, I think that, you know, if you look across agents and across trials, the effect is very small. It's less than 1%. And part of the reason it's hard to unravel this is because of different comparators between different studies, some being tamoxifen, some being placebo, and also the generally low rates. And to my knowledge, there's no black box warning for any of these agents about cardiovascular risk. So I think it's something we all remain concerned about. And as the trials mature and as the length of time people have taken these agents, you know, the number of people that have been taking them for a long time increases. I think, you know, this is something that needs to be reevaluated continuously but I don't think it's a major issue right now in terms of selection between aromatase inhibitors or for selecting an aromatase inhibitor versus tamoxifen. And I guess it really hasn't been seen in the ATAC trial, the first paper, but it was seen in the big study of letrozole and I think the switching study of exemestane. Is that still the case? I believe that's right. And one of the abstracts we're going to review here is the LEAP study, which is looking at serum lipids. That's paper 2092, which actually was reported first last year, and now they presented it again. What did they look at? Basically, what they did is they had 90 patients randomly assigned to each of the three aromatase inhibitors. And they were treated, actually, for only a relatively short period of time. And that was for, as reported here, I think the total treatment was 36 weeks, but they reported the results for 24 weeks, where there's a principal endpoint. And what struck me is that there weren't any huge changes for any of these agents, that, you know, they were in the range of 10% at the extreme. And so there is possibly differences that could actually have real physiologic basis. The anastrozole seems somewhat favored in some situations. For instance, there were lesser effects of anastrozole than in letrozole on LDL and HDL ratio. In fact, it was perturbed a little bit more negatively for letrozole. Exomustane seemed to increase triglyceride levels versus the other aromatase inhibitors, specifically anastrozole. So I think these surrogate markers of what's going on, in my mind, they suggest minor differences, perhaps favoring anastrozole. But I'm always a little leery of surrogate markers. 
And, you know, I think there's still argument amongst cardiologists exactly how in different patient populations, all of these things affect risk. So I think it's an interesting observation, but I don't think one that's going to lead to any changes in practice. I want to ask you about paper 4044, looking at the issue of adherence to long-term hormonal therapy, in this case, anastrozole, presented by Ann Partridge. She previously had done some work in tamoxifen, suggesting that a surprisingly large number of patients didn't take their medication. Now she's looked at anastrozole. I think this is a really fascinating type of study to do because I think we all think that patients are taking their medications, but quite surprisingly often they really aren't or they're not taking it in a way that we perceive they are taking it, which probably leads, by the way, to some physician error. I mean, we switch agents because we think the agent is failing, but really the agent hasn't failed. It's just the patient isn't really taking it. So what she did is she had basically pharmacy records and then also gross diagnosis records for patients in certain healthcare systems. She didn't really have individual patient data, you know, whether or not they were experiencing toxicity, all those kind of things. But they knew the diagnosis. So they took a look at patients who had early breast cancer and were taking an aromatase inhibitor for adjuvant therapy, therefore. And they found that they defined adherence, being non-adherent, as taking less than 80% of the planned number of pills in a given year that you should have. And actually, in the non-adherent population, about half of the patients were taking less than half of their planned dose. So these people are you know, really suboptimally dosing themselves, at least according to the guidelines. And that's actually quite a striking number. It mentions in the abstract that adherence has fallen to only 50% of patients taking at least 80% of their planned dose by year three. That data wasn't actually presented in the poster, but it does suggest that the problem in year one only deepens further. So on looking at this, of course, you wonder, well, is this really unique to aromatase inhibitors? Is there something, some hidden problem that we're not fully appreciating that patients are stopping their medication. But this is exactly the frequencies of discontinuation and not adherence that she'd previously found for tamoxifen. So I think this represents the fact that patients, in my opinion, what it is, is that immediately after the diagnosis of cancer, they're truly terrified of the idea of recurrence. And as time goes on, the kind of imperative that they should be doing something about this gradually decreases. And they become, you know, kind of more confident that things will go well, and maybe less compulsive about taking their medication. Her conclusion, by the way, is a good one. And her conclusion is that physicians need to inquire about and encourage compliance. And I think that is the bottom line of this, that assuming that your patient's taking the drug is something that, you know, you shouldn't do. And that patients need encouragement to continue their medication on their follow-up visits. It's interesting in our patterns of care studies, we asked docs to predict essentially what she looked at, which is what is the adherence in this situation. And they, what their predictions are very, very different than what you just discussed. They basically thought that the patients continue to take their medication right through the whole five years. So I think it's a big surprise to many physicians. Right. I agree that, you know, there are times when we make assumptions about what patient behavior is 
you know, it's been shown over and over again that the doctor sometimes misperceives really what the patient's doing and that the physician generally underreports toxicities that the patient has. And of course, the patient, when they come in, don't want to do anything to displease the doctor. And so they're likely to downplay the difficulties they have. And they're likely to not actually bring up the fact that they, you know, for one reason or another, aren't taking their medicine. I have to say that the one thing that I found reassuring about this abstract was that this wasn't a unique problem for aromatase inhibitors. And that is reassuring. It means that, you know, there isn't some major unrecognized toxicity that's going to blunt the eventual value of aromatase inhibitors. And incidentally, a lot of the trials are done, of course, with pill counts and that kind of thing. So the true value of the therapy really requires, almost certainly requires compliance. Incidentally, for aromatase inhibitors, some of these actually have pharmacologic half-lives of like a day. And so, whereas tamoxifen has a pharmacologic half-life of a week, so that, you know, compliance is perhaps more important for aromatase inhibitors than it is for tamoxifen. We've talked about effects on bone, lipids, and thrombosis. There's also a paper, 4055, looking at the issue of AIs in the endometrium. This was a study, which was a sub-study of the ATAC trial, looking at endometrial issues, and they measured endometrial thickness. And in this study, there was actually a relatively small number of patients. It's somewhere around 300 patients. And so they're following these patients to see what kind of changes there are in endometrial thickness and what kind of issues come up. And in this study, what they found was that endometrial thickness was greater in the tamoxifen group and kind of doubled in thickness while taking tamoxifen. There was, of course, no effect of aromatase inhibitors on endometrial thickness. And then in terms of general endometrial events, there was a trend for them to be more common in the group that was getting tamoxifen versus anastrozole. One of the things about this was that there was an obvious imbalance in things like hysterectomies, although the total number of hysterectomies was low. And, you know, in this relatively small subset of patients, there was one hysterectomy in the patients who were getting anastrozole, and there were nine hysterectomies in the patients who were getting tamoxifen. So I think basically what it shows is that there's a long-term effect of tamoxifen, at least out to five and six years, on endometrial thickness. There's trend to more endometrial problems. In a way, I think this isn't really a surprise. This is seen you know, in the trial overall, where there was clearly more endometrial problems in the patients on the tamoxifen arm. We were talking before about the ZFAS study, and there was another study presented, 4061, the SABER study, also looking at an AI, in this case, anastrozole with a bisphosphonate, in this case, residronate. Can you talk about what they found? In this study, patients were randomized to either get residronate or not. All patients were getting anastrozole. And the study is reported at three and six months. So this is short-term follow-up. But looking at the ability of this bisphosphonate to dull basically what is biomarker changes. So what they found was that those patients who were getting residronate had the protective effects in the biomarker expression. And that is specifically that they had less bone absorption biomarkers and a favorable bone formation biomarker profile. So I think this is a surrogate study of the endpoint that we really want to know. But in my mind, it's a pilot study because it only had about 150 patients 
who are randomized between the two studies. Everyone who's got a bisphosphonate, of course, wants to know whether or not it would be relevant in patients who are taking aromatase inhibitors. And so this study actually, in my opinion, sets the stage for wider studies looking at residronate in this particular scenario. The last thing I want to ask you about are four really fascinating papers related to the Oncotype DX assay. Paper 45, which looked at different associations with prognosis and prediction of tamoxifen benefit. Then there was 6039 that looked at the impact of recurrence score on patient variation and quantitative expression of the individual genes. Paper 6111, showing the relationship between the proliferation genes and expression of hormone and growth factor receptors. And finally, paper 6118, looking at subtypes of breast cancer defined by the oncotype. And I just thought this whole set of papers was fascinating. It was a whole new sort of look inside the oncotype. Yeah, so these are fascinating papers. The first of the papers was actually a presentation and was kind of a reanalysis of information from NSABP B14 and also the Kaiser Permanente study. And both of these studies were basically looking at the value of this test in predicting both initially just the prognosis of patients who were on tamoxifen, but also when they looked at untreated populations, the predictive value of this test to identify patients who particularly benefited from tamoxifen. Now, they've always reported this as a composite recurrence score. So although there are 15 genes here It's never been presented specifically on the level of genes. Well, in this series of four presentations, you know, one oral and three posters, they're now beginning to actually ask deeper questions looking at individual genes. So what they did is they looked in the NSABP B14 and the Kaiser Permanente studies at estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor, looking to see their specific value. Now, one of the things that's really potentially great about doing this is that it's more quantitative than immunohistochemistry. I mean, in immunohistochemistry, you know, it's often broken out into three or four intensity scores and a percentage of cells score so that, you know, it has a dynamic range of like one to nine. These tests often have ranges over many, many doublings of a thousandfold or more. So they can really look in a quantitative sense at the genes. So what they did in the presentation 45 was they looked at the individual genes. And specifically, they looked at whether or not estrogen receptor made prognostic or predictive differences. Now, almost all of these patients are estrogen receptor positive, although there were a few that were estrogen receptor negative. So really what we're looking at here is patients who were in the highest group expression of mRNA for the estrogen receptor, mid and low. And when they took a look at this, what they found was that the estrogen receptor itself was not strongly prognostic. But when they took a look to see whether or not it was predictive, it was relatively predictive of the benefit of tamoxifen. Now, they looked at also at progesterone receptor, And interestingly enough, the progesterone receptor actually did add prognostic information. To have high levels of the progesterone receptor indicated that you would have a better prognosis. However, when they looked to see whether or not it was predictive 
of particular benefit for tamoxifen. It was not. And many people have said, oh, well, the progesterone would be predictive of the effect of tamoxifen and find this result really surprising. I don't find this result surprising. One of the things in the overview meta-analysis that's always been a sleeper in there and never paid much attention to is that in the overview analysis, when they looked at the value of the progesterone receptor to predict you know, proportional benefits in ER-positive patients, it didn't add any information. So I think that this is really consistent with the world literature and perhaps brings it forth in a way to reemphasize what the overview has been saying for some time. So basically what they're saying here is that they can gain deeper insight into the meaning of these things using their data, which is really for the first time, maybe since the ligand binding era, you know, a quantitative measure of how much estrogen and progesterone receptor is there and what its actual significance is. When you said that the estrogen receptor was not prognostic, but was predictive in this study, when you say prognostic, you mean in the B14 patients who didn't get tamoxifen? Right, that's right. I should have made that more clear, perhaps. And that is that when you took a look at the untreated patients, that the estrogen receptor levels were not associated with outcome. Do you think, you know, we've had this issue about whether tumors that are ER positive, HER2 positive, respond well to hormonal therapy? We know that HER2 is a big factor in the oncotype. Do you think that, you know, maybe there's sort of an association with lower levels of ER and higher levels of HER2 that maybe explain what's going on there? Right. Whenever you look at univariate looks at things, it can be that you find an association, but it's really driven in a more powerful way by another variable. So it, it well could be that it's something like the HER2. I actually don't think it's HER2. I think that rather than that, it's something else or some constellation of things that's important. Because I think the data that HER2 really strongly modulates hormone sensitivity is relatively weak. Where do you think this might be heading when people have talked about whether assays like the Oncotype might end up replacing, you know, for example, IHC for ER? Do you think that's sort of where things are going? Yes. I think you can see that developing in the other three abstracts. For instance, in one of those abstracts presented as a poster, they actually plot ER level against HER2 level. And when they do that, you get actually a very striking graph where you see three clusters of points representing individual patients. And they feel that those points are the triple negatives who don't express either, the HER2 phenotype that expresses HER2 and expresses variable levels of estrogen receptor, and then the ER positive cases that express only low levels of HER2, which would be the luminal subtypes. So I think one of the things that's fantastic about this is they're getting the largest set of patient clinical information that's out there. They have done this assay now on 20,000 people, you know, and they can really make correlations between different genes in a really very powerful sense. And I think that in the end, they will be reporting these genes as individual genes and that there will be work done, such as the work that they presented at this meeting, 
investigating the clinical significance of individual genes as well as the recurrence score. Yeah, I saw Steve Shack at the meeting. He was so excited. He went over and grabbed his computer and showed me these sort of cluster diagrams with these three groups that you just talked about. And I have to admit, it was pretty cool looking. Well, you know, most of the time when people are talking about genetic profiles, you take a look and they have 150 patients. When you have 20,000 patients, you can really begin to plot these things against each other. And what's really striking, and it's got to be biologically telling us something deep, is that they're not a random distribution or even just a big shotgun, you know, kind of weak correlation, but they actually form clusters. So that really does suggest that breast cancer is going to break out to be a few different types of disease, not just one type with minor variants. Can you comment on the specific points that were looked at in the three posters? In the first of their posters, they looked at correlations between three genes, and that's estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2, and a composite score of the proliferation genes that they use as a cluster in this assay, the Oncotype DX test. And What they found was that there were some weak correlations between the proliferation index and ER and PR, no real correlation with HER2. And overall, the proliferation index was independent of all three of these genes. So what this actually shows, I think, is that, you know, even though we talk about triple negatives, in the end, what we're going to be talking about is multiple genes controlling different parts of the process. And that having a knowledge of individual genes may help us understand different processes and that we're not going to be just talking about three genes. Do you think that there's a correlation between or there will be proven a correlation between the proliferation index and response to chemotherapy? Certainly, that's something that most of us clinically believe. And that is that in general, within breast cancer and across cancers, It's the rapidly proliferating cancers that are the ones that seem most vulnerable to chemotherapy. And I guess it also makes the point that even within ER-positive tumors, we know this because high recurrence score tumors have an excellent response to chemotherapy. You do see patients with high proliferation or tumors with high proliferation. Right. You know, I think there have been papers that have suggested that you could use ER and PR for this purpose for predicting chemotherapy responsiveness. But in the end, things like the overview suggest that it may not be as good as it seems. And it's not clear really why that is, why some studies show it and some don't. One of the problems may be that we simply don't have very good quantitative ways that we're routinely clinically measuring these things. And so that new technologies, those that are doing RT-PCR, looking at mRNA levels, may in the end be much more quantitative and powerful way to take a look at these things. They have gathered an enormous amount of data on the patient's values that they've done. Now, of course, they don't have actually clinical information about these 20,000 patients that they've done this analysis on. So we're largely looking at correlations between different genes and the recurrence score groups of genes. But in things where they plot one against the other and see subsets, different regions with different clouds of points, as if there are different subgroups or profiles that are distinct, really shows that even having only correlation information is going to be valuable in the end. 